Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with John Robbins, who's currently playing His Majesty King George III in Hamilton at the Victoria Palace Theatre in London. John made his West End debut as Princeton and Rod in Avenue Q in 2006. Since then, he's also appeared in shows such as Les Miserables, Spamalot, Memphis, Sister Act and Legally Blonde. We met at the theatre before a matinee performance of Hamilton and had a chat in John's dressing room. It was probably the nicest backstage area I've ever seen. Even the corridors were carpeted and well lit, which is rare, let me tell you. Here's our conversation. John Robbins, welcome to the Backstage With podcast. Thank you for having me. It's very early for you, isn't it? I've never recorded one at a theatre at 20 to 12 before. Yeah, we've uh, got a matinee at Hamilton today, so we thought we'd come in and just, you know, have a nice chill chat first. How do you normally feel on this time before a matinee? Is it normally quite a struggle to get in or to get up? Yeah, I mean, the weather and the time of year is quite dependent because if it's dark and cold, it's a lot harder to get up and in than it is if it's bright and sunny. Like during the summer, it was an absolute delight coming in. But it's, it's generally fine. You sort of, you get used to it, you know. Do you have to make yourself go to bed earlier the night before a two-show day? No, not particularly. Um, I mean, it sort of depends on the role you're playing. I'm playing King George at the moment, so that's nine minutes. So it's it's not it's not too stressful. But I would imagine if I was playing Hamilton, yeah, I'd probably be a bit more attentive to my sleep. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we were just talking about how nice your dressing room is with mm. the nice duck egg carpet Gorgeous. and how the, the corridor looks like a hotel. <laughs> Yeah. It's lovely. It's no, fun. I love it. And you're sitting spread on a chaise longue. Yes, I am. Sorry, I should have. Off, I should have let you have the comfy no, seat. No, no, I, I just is... kind of tuck it. No, it's good. It's, you look great there. Thanks. I'm really, really comfortable. <laughs> yeah. So the theatre was renovated, but you said they're not quite finished. But your this area is all is all. Oh beautiful. yeah, this is all finished. There's bits of aesthetic stuff front of house to do, and the whole block. I mean, the Victoria Palace is sort of on a roundabout, a very large one, but on a roundabout. So there's stuff happening all around it. But it, you know makes the area seem vibrant and fun this must be one of the nicest theatres you've worked in yeah especially in the west end yeah yeah it really is i mean it's a matcham theatre so that automatically gives you a good start but yeah they've really taken a lot of care to renovate it and there's plenty of bathrooms and the front of house is constantly being polished always smells of furniture polish and metal polish it's uh, it's great you are playing King George III here mm-hmm. at Hamilton. Are you only accepting roles in shows that are set in the 1700s 1800s at the moment? <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah, I loved a ruffle shirt. I mean, you can't get away from them. Um, I have done quite a few, I think, about it. But yeah, it's also, you know, there has to be some sort of revolutionary element to the plot. And we'll, um, I guess we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, yeah, oh, we will, we will. You said nine minutes. That's, yeah. is that quite lonely? Because I'm guessing for about seven of that, you're on stage on your own. Yeah. It isn't lonely insofar that when you're on stage, there's no one else in the cast on stage with me, but I get 1,600 people to talk to. So I never feel alone there. Also, I mean, just because he's a king, he's always right. So however you feel is correct. And getting your head, as an actor, getting your head round, playing someone that's never been told no is interesting because you get to watch them be told no for the first time. But no, I don't I feel lonely. I mean, I go and visit people in the theatre when I'm not on stage and 
I'm sure I bug them, but uh, they no one seems to mind too much. You must get lots of life admin done, though. I have a lot of life admin done, yes. Managed to produce uh, this album and uh, this tour, which takes an awful lot of awful lot of organisation. I've also I've, got, I've, I've written a book and I've oh, wow. written a pilot for a TV show and bits and pieces, so I've, I've kept myself busy. You've had a very productive year. Very productive. When you're out there and you are at the front of the stage and you have to make eye contact with people, mm-hmm. the first time you did that, was that terrifying? Or is it still terrifying? No, that's what I get off on. Okay. Having... Making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to being involved in the character. So he can't be wrong. So anyone that looks at him is clearly looking at him with adoration and respect. No one could possibly ever look at him with anything else. So it's uh, it's interesting to be in that mindset. But no, I really enjoy having people to tell a story to an attentive audience and and because of the function of king george in this show because he's practically the only still thing the audience automatically come to you whereas a lot of the show is vibrant and incredible and the choreography is magnificent and huge i think a lot of people kind of go okay we need a bit of a bit of a chill out moment and then we'll go off again so providing that to an audience really feels good it does punctuate it so yeah. well, doesn't it? Just that moment of stillness after all the intensity mm. and you can kind of go, oh, yeah. <laughs> as you sort of stalk in from the back. Sure. What's the best reaction you've had when you're at the front and you're sort of staring at someone? Or um, we, had, we had a reaction in the third song, the I Know Him, where I said, John Adams and someone went way from the back I was like have we got a John Adams fan in I know a John Adams to be fair <laughs> but not the John Adams no obviously <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was interesting and of course the whole audience you know laughed hysterically for a couple of moments which gave me a couple of more opportunities for comedy although I think I made everyone late for their trains so I apologise for it's that it's worth it it's <laughs> worth it that must just be the best though when, when you get a little something back yeah, yeah. How is it when, because obviously it can't be the same every night. So are you sort of hoping to get something back sometimes? Yeah, I, you throw up little, with all comedy, you throw up little test balloons to see what the audience is going to be like that night. Like I always, every show, I watch the opening number from the wings just to get a vibe of how the audience are reacting to it, how they're feeling, if they're loud, if they're, and and you can tell really quickly with comedy whether they're going to go for it. Like I as I stalk down, downstage off my first entrance, I flick my eyes around. And if they pick up on that, then you're like, right, I've got an attentive audience. If not, then you think, okay, where am I going to put the beats on this audience? So that makes it alive and keeps me awake. What do you do if they're not an attentive audience from the get-go? How do you rein them in? Well, it, it, it's a combination of being clearer, being sometimes slower or sometimes faster. It's, it's, it really depends. Um, and it's a make your mind up in the moment type of decision yeah your brain must just be on yeah overdrive but that's the same with any part isn't it yeah how long had you been after this job when it came up oh well i heard i heard the album first christmas 15 i think so pretty soon after it came out and of course everyone was talking about it i was like okay i'll give it a listen and i was obsessed with it like everyone else but i couldn't audition for it because i was doing the wedding singer so it you know alleviated any stress on me of getting the role and then Mike was uh, Mike Gibson was so brilliant that and when I came and watched it and I saw third preview because I had to see it of course so I got tickets you did as, well to get a ticket that early yeah, in the run no I know um, there were a company seat Giles Torreira helped me out to get tickets where I was like oh great great guy oh, awesome guy 
so I, I was sort of, it wasn't on my radar at all. And then because I'm friends with Mike, he let me know that he was, wasn't going to do a second year. And Did that, that surprise you? Yeah. Because I was, I was quite, so especially when he won the Olivier, I was like. Well, the thing is with Mike is that he's got such a prolific screen career as well um, that I think, you know, he thoroughly enjoyed this, but he wanted to do other things and listen, this show ain't going anywhere. True. Either in London or internationally, so I'm sure he can come back at some point if he wants to. And I auditioned for it spring 18, spring 18. And then, uh, and yeah, it just sort of went through from there. But the interesting thing about this audition process is that you do the whole part. Because <laughs> the whole part's only nine minutes yeah. long. <laughs> that must be the first time you've ever done that. The whole part, yeah. Usually you do like a couple of selected bits just to see if you can you know capture this character or hit that note or do whatever you need to do but sure. with this one it was like here's the entire part go <laughs> and in the audition did they give you any direction or was it literally yeah. go through it once and then that was it yeah no i had three auditions for it so came in with the uk team and we worked on bits and pieces and did notes came back the following week with uh the uk producers and the uk team and did some more bits and then the us guys were in the third ones um Tommy Kale and uh, Alex Lacamoire, who were the director and uh, music genius behind the, the thing, were in the room. And yeah, they just sort of did a lot of nodding and smiling and thanks very much. Because you, once you get into the finals for a show, there's very little feedback. They're just, you're doing a, as much of a performance as you're ever going to do. You know, I try to think of auditions as rehearsals, but at one point it does turn into a, a, a performance. When you walk in the room and you've got Alex Lacamoire and Tommy Cale sitting there, are mm-hmm. you not like, oh my God, that's them? Um, yes. And also they, the week before, the weekend before, they had just won the Olivier for it. Oh. So, An- another an- Yes, another gong. They were like, oh God, we're running out of shells. So yeah, it is a little bit like that, but that happens sort of every now and then. Like I did a job in 2011 at the Menier um, called Roadshow and Stephen Sondheim came and worked with us. And you just think, what do I have to say to this man? you know and so those kind of guys show along and you know you just got to think right they've asked me to be here so I deserve to be here so we're fine do you find yourself on on your way to the audition or on the way to the if you know they're going to be there sort of thinking in your head okay what what can I actually say to them or do you just leave it Um, up to yes and no I mean I'd rather know that they were there um so that I'm sort of prepped but I don't think it would make that much of a difference because I'm there to do a job like if then they open it up to so how's your life John then we'll talk but until that point um, it's like well no you you do what they've asked you to do and you do it the way that you've prepared it and we'll see how we do Uh, I did an audition for parade at the Donmar years ago and I didn't know Jason Robert Brown was going to be in the room and as I'm sitting outside the audition room he walks past me that did not go well. <laughs> no, I can imagine my <laughs> stomach would have dropped yeah. out. Yeah, mine, mine did. <laughs> but when when you then subsequently get to have a more informal conversation with yeah. these people, what I mean, what did you talk to Tommy Kale and um, Alex Lackamore about? You mean once I had the job? Yeah. Well, uh, again, because we are a second company, they weren't in rehearsals that much because the UK team are now into the the flow of putting up companies. But when you get an opportunity to talk to them, you know, these guys, they're, they're normal guys. They're, they just have Geniuses. really good ideas. <laughs> so <laughs> I try and sort of talk to them about their ideas and bounce my ideas off them and see what, see where we can meet in the middle. And 
you know, theatre is a team sport, right? So it's all about collaboration. So it's what can you bring? What can I bring? And how can we give it to the, the people in the best way? Sure. When it comes to the cabinet battle, I think it's the cabinet battle. I've, mm. only, it's, I've only seen it twice, so mm. I'm still like overwhelmed every time. But is it the cabinet battle when you're up to the side and you get to sort of let go a little bit more? Have I got that completely wrong? Oh, you mean... In Act 2? In Act 2. No, that's Reynolds' pamphlet. Reynolds' pamphlet. Yeah. Oh, see. Yeah, I managed to put a slut drop into that. I did notice that, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's been completely ratified by um, Andy Blankenbluehler, and the choreographer. Great, great. So I did, I did check it with him. It's it was fine. Signed, the slut drop was signed off. <laughs> that's like the only bit where you're on stage with other people. Mm. You have to sort of enjoy that as much as possible, I right? I do. Although, again, I'm a sort of singular entity surrounded by people he's not really there he's just metaphorically there so i can't actually interact with anyone and i make a gag out of that there's one point where i come on and someone's walking towards me with a box and i sort of shuffle around them to avoid them which is a sort of silly meta gag but i love it but yeah it it is it is a weird part we were talking yesterday um lecker the uk associate and i were talking about his function in the show and you could take him completely out of the show and the narrative wouldn't be affected one little bit because he's not actually propelling the narrative anywhere he's a pundit of sorts or another dimension yeah right i mean he's completely outside the story historically he never went to a the colonies he never went to america he never met any of these people except when john adams came over to see him before he was president but having the sort of international scope of it gives it context and i'm robbing wisdom from lynn here but why not he's he says it's to rob the american revolution of its inevitability because if you have other people viewing it then it doesn't just become a story that has a beginning middle and end there's a there's an observance of it like how is it going to play out and as a brit playing to brits it has another sort of mirror against a mirror quality which is interesting to play and they were nervous about how it would go down weren't they yeah but from my perspective i just think surely people would always love that because it's just genius it is it is an an absolutely inspired addition to the show and i'm really pleased it's there me too (laughs) when you got the job how much reading did you do how much research what did you it's all up there i am pointing to the shelf above me on my dressing room i have up here an autobiography of George the Third, a uh, two Georges, that's Washington and King George the Third book. I have the Alexander Hamilton Ron Chernow biography, a George the Third life in caricature, which is sort of political context, and what's called the Hamilton, which is the book that you can buy front of house here, which is the making of the show. Six weeks rehearsals, nine minutes a show. I had a lot of reading time. So I, I read all of those. But obviously, it's, when you're playing a real person, it, it's it's interesting to have that. And I like to broaden my horizons, so it's nice to know things. But you have to take the writer's opinion of those people. Otherwise, you're going to come uh, come a cropper with your own ideas, where it's not really my ideas. It's the creative's ideas, and they're fine, because they're all geniuses. But yeah, I did a fair amount of reading. Even with all of, of the way that they want the character to be... Mm. He's a really interesting... Without turning this into a history podcast, sure. he did so much stuff. Sure. He's one of the more interesting yeah. historical and royals. He oversaw the Industrial Revolution, the defeat of Napoleon. The, he, I mean, he, because he was... Because he was only really a monarch in name for so long, because he was ineffective because of his mental illness, 
he wasn't like assassinated or deposed or you know voted out or there was no coup against him like some of his predecessors so he reigned for a really long time and there were people that sort of helped the country along in his stead so yeah he was uh, very very interesting interesting guy to play let's talk about your new album and recent tour musical direction Mm -hmm. my favorite thing i have to tell you the arrangement of i could be that guy (laughs) i love how the bit before the instrumental you sort of make us wait for the high note (laughs) which they don't do in the show and then you finally give it and then take it even more yeah yeah that was my favorite just just uh, just well that's sarah travis who was the music supervisor for the sister act tour and organized this and it was one of those should we do this type things ideas light bulb ideas in in the studio she just went tell you guys if we just repeat this section then we can have a sax solo here how are you feeling about that i went yeah great so i mean that's a, a perfect depiction of what the album was about it was about allowing musical directors to express what they wanted to express because it's it's really to sort of pay homage to them um, I've worked with some of the most incredible MDs in the industry, and they really just make me look good. So <laughs> I thought we'd give we'd give the uh, give the accolades to them on this album. It's so rare to hear a musical theatre actors performers album that is so listenable and so oh, like you. repeat listenable. There are <laughs> I can probably name a handful of people whose like musical theatre albums I've wanted to listen back to. Thank you. So with the tour, you went to Liverpool, Leicester, Leicester Square. Mm-hmm. How was that received? Did it go well? Yeah, it went really well. It's so interesting. I mean, this is true of all tours, not just individual people's gigs, but each town has its own vibe. And because I was doing mostly the same set in each venue, um, it's interesting to see how the same songs go down differently in different venues. But yeah, it was great. Doing those sort of intimate gigs is really cool. I had an interesting contrast on the first one because on the Saturday I did... Hyde Park, Proms in the Park for the BBC um, to 40,000 people and on the Sunday I did my own album to 180 people in in a room <laughs> so it was so interesting performing those in those extremes um, and each has pros and cons you, know? you have to flick a switch I guess Yeah. what was your favourite track to perform live from the album? oh that's a really good question I don't know I love doing the last five years stuff Moving Too Fast is, has always been sort of my party trick and I got to play that role in 2014 and I was obsessed with that show at college and loved it so much it's hit after hit after isn't hit isn't it just um, and to get to do the show was just joyous and Mike Riley who is the MD that organised and arranged that number did just such an incredible job and uh Dan Humphreys, who's on bass, does a particularly good job on that track. And when we were mastering it, I was like, just knock the bass up a bit more, just a bit more, just just, just, just put the bass up to 11 and then we're fine. <laughs> so I, I really love doing that track. Who was your Cathy when you did Last Five Years? I can't remember. Daniel, I hope. Really? I feel like I should have known that. <laughs> I never made it, sadly. Oh, sorry. Um, but I remember seeing you very shortly before at West End Miscast or Recast oh, yeah. or something yeah. at the Noel Coward, right. I want to say. Might have been Duke of York's. You did might... a Dreamgirl song it and Duke it was York, yeah. insane. <laughs> All of the riffs. I just remember it was literally... <laughs> I was so nervous about that, not because I had to perform that song, because I'd done it before, but because Cynthia Erivo was standing in the wings. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, I, be- I better do this well, otherwise she will kill me. <laughs> was it in the original key? It was so high. Yeah, it was the original key. Oh, my God. But... um. 
Yeah, I didn't speak for I several days. I love how days. you just sort of dropped that. Yeah, it was an original yeah, it was, yeah, but it, was, it was really... Those gigs were great fun. I loved doing those things. I did... <laughs> the other one I did that night was I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No, like Dean Martin would do it. Oh, yeah. Like a swing version. Like the butchest... I'm just a girl who can say no. that's no. great. You know, and you... <laughs> it was so silly. But that fun. whole night was crazy. I remember Tracy Bennett coming out in dungarees and giving my friend a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> and then asking... Because we were in the front row and then asking for it back at the end. And I was like, you should have drunk it. Yeah. Oh, well. That was great. You moved around a lot as a child. Mm-hmm. What was your earliest theatrical experience? I mean, if you ask my mum, it was going to the uh, local, the, the oh, what was it, community centre, I suppose. And there was a band and I was about three and I went and sat under the lead singer and sat under his feet and just looked up and watched him for the whole set. And so you were done for. I was, I was, yeah, so that might have been it. But I, I don't really know. I, I did school productions and choirs and those sorts of things. And I was always doing extracurricular amdram as a kid and there was one point where i was in i think four four productions at once when i was about 10 11 just because i just couldn't get enough of it you know so i guess it was it's, it sort of ramped up from there was it difficult to stay in lots of groups and keep joining things when you're moving around a lot yeah was it three different places you lived I, this is just on wikipedia <laughs> it, oh no it's fine i went to 13 schools oh my um, lord so I, I moved around a lot but um yeah it's it is difficult insofar that you join them and then you leave them. But it's, in hindsight, actually very good preparation for a world of theatre because that's what you do. You have to show up, trust each other really quickly, make better than friends, family in 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 a lot of effective ways. And then you have to say goodbye to them. And although there's no you know hard feelings about any of it, you might not see them for years. So it, it's I guess it was good prep. Do you remember seeing anything, any productions as a child and being yeah, I definitely, overwhelmed? Yeah, I definitely saw Philip Schofield do Joseph when I was a kid. And I remember about 15, 14, 15, I saw National Youth Music Theatre's Into the Woods that was that Rebecca Traherne was in at the time, which is funny because I trained with her at Mountview and talking to her about that, she was like, you saw that? Oh, my God. I saw Jesus Christ Superstar on tour when I was about 16. And then, well, when I was... 12 or 13 we went to see Les Miserables in the West End and that was the first West End show I ever saw and I think that was a lot of people's introduction to the West End because it was just a generational phenomenon yeah you know when it came to making your West End debut in Avenue Q you'd done a couple of things before that like Miss Saigon but that to be in an original show Mm. that was coming in from Broadway that Mm. was unlike anything that we'd ever had before you must have just felt like you'd landed on your feet. Yeah, although I was 22, so it was difficult. I didn't have context for any of that. Um, and I think myself and Simon Lipkin and Julie Atherton and really didn't know it was going to be as big as it was. And it, it was a risk. Like, again, it seems like it was always going to be brilliant because it's brilliant. But a lot of brilliant things don't succeed. And it was a risky thing to introduce to a London audience, the student audience that came that supported us was just amazing and I think it really tapped into a a, an audience that don't usually come to theatre which is like office parties because it's so raucous and it was so out there and people would be dragged along and then they would drag others to it and it just sort of snowballed from there but yeah it was it was great I mean (laughs) at at the time I didn't realize that it was going to be such a 
a, a cool West End debut, but it was definitely definitely was one of the coolest. <laughs> what was the worst thing that went wrong during that show? Avenue Q. Yeah, all our voices got very tired because the ness of it all for me and the ness of it all for yeah. Simon was took its toll. I, my hand went numb in rehearsals because like training the muscles was really hard. We all had shoulder issues. We all had neck issues. And they they look, the company looked after us really well. A physio would come twice a week to the theatre and, and help us. But um, until the muscle sort of built up a bit, that was very tiring. But in terms of what actually went wrong, I, I don't know. Because with that show, you can get out of a lot of hard corners it's a gift isn't it really um, prince and rod though what a great part yes. to play both of them such contrasting yeah. characters but so loved I, like, I was 15 when it when it came here so i was completely of the age where i was completely seduced by it mm-hmm. and rod was a, like probably one of the first gay characters mm. to be everyone knows he's gay but apart from him during the show yeah that was quite out there in a show that was already out there yeah it really was and that's why I think Avenue Q is definitely a period piece now because the way they describe the the gay experience of coming out is very different now than it was what nearly 20 years ago when it was written because it came Broadway 03 I think yeah you're right so it would have been written sort of 2001 2002 my god that's crazy how quick that's gone um so the the coming out experience is very different now. The internet experience is very different now. The sort of millennial postgraduate university experience is very different now. So I think it really was a big deal for people. And you're not the only person that said to me that had a big effect on me, um, Rod's story. So, uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. I felt very proud to to be part of that. And you did do My Girlfriend Lives in Canada on the album. Yes. With Simon at the end, was that? There's a secret track at the end, yes. At some point, I will release the 20-minute long outtakes because <laughs> those that's completely improvised, that sketch. We didn't write anything. And as Simon and I always do, we just get in a room and go. So there are... <laughs> There are about seven different versions of various sketches that came up with the top of our heads, and at some point I'll release the. Should 20- do it like a Hamel drop and 20- do it like every week. <laughs> People would love that. <laughs> What's the hardest job you've ever done? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, they're all hard, in and they're all fun, and they're you know there are different elements to all of them. I guess being outside my comfort zone is difficult. Um, when I did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I did a four-minute tap break that Stephen Meir choreographed during Old Bamboo. And that is not my principal skill. I can do it if I practice really hard, which I had to. So that was that was a lot of work. Um, but that was just an absolute joy to to sweat for. You know, it was so fun and it was so rewarding and that piece is so full of heart and warmth and I just fell in love with my well they're not fictional they're real but you know the little Jeremy's and Jemima's and I'm still in contact with them and their parents and yeah they're wonderful in fact one of my Jemima's is playing Dorothy at the Leeds Playhouse this Christmas in Wizard of Oz oh wow Lucy Sherman she's great I have to ask you about Les Mis, mm-hmm. obviously. The the past one or the next one? Well, you know, all of them. Because <laughs> you've, you've joined an elite tribe of people who have played multiple <laughs> parts in that show. Yeah. Not that you already weren't part of that tribe, because now I can't pronounce the middle one. But obviously you were Marius in yes. 2008. 
and then say it for me. Andras. There we go. I, I just can't do it. The or, northern in me just wants to go Andras. Andras. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> oh, that, really? That'll do. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, some people pronounce it Andras. Andras. Okay, I quite like that. But, you know, whichever. A little bit pretentious. Him. But okay. Yeah, him. Him. The guy with the red <laughs> The guy with the red race coat that nearly yeah, wasn't yeah. in the new production. I had to fight for it. Seriously? Yeah, when we were in doing rehearsals. Thank God you were there. <laughs> Then we were doing rehearsals for the original um, company of that production, which is now the production. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to give me the red waistcoat and I had to have a, like, please pleading with the directors and the designers for this waistcoat. And I said, look, it's iconic. It needs it. It's narrative. It's war. It's the- I made really good points. No one would know who he is without no. it. <laughs> I, really, I really fought hard for it. And there was all kinds of different iterations of whether we see him put it on like I'd come up with this idea of him being anointed with it just to really ram home the waistcoatness of it all but uh, but yeah it turned out that it was run on with it lob a gun in the air it can't beat that you know no it's it's historic historic sure. image your history with this show how planned was it because obviously when you went to Marius were you always like I'll do that one as well next I, I don't think I added the word next, but yeah, I definitely wanted to do that one. Um, I mean, they're such different parts and I get asked which is my favourite and you, it's like choosing between children. However, Angeras is underwritten, I think, in that he's so steadfast in his beliefs and you don't get to see him for long enough for any sort of doubt to creep in. Because if you think about it, you meet him on the day he dies. So... That, that that is interesting to play and a real challenge to sort of get up to the sort of peak you need to be at really quickly and stay there um, and the, the unshakable belief of the man is really cool to play but Marius lives in a grey area of do I go with my heart or do I go with my head and he just constantly is back and forth and which again is very interesting to play to play grey is really is really hard but uh that's that's great fun i definitely wanted to do both doing them in separate productions Uh do you think do you see that as sort of a blessing because it helps define your time in each part yeah although i kept saying gareth gates lines for him (laughs) because he was playing marius i I just finished playing marius i was like oh no not me (laughs) but yeah i think i think it definitely i think definitely helped separate them because i'm not standing in the directly opposite who i was before do you have a preference between the two productions or are they two different? <laughs> between the two productions? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're, they're totally different animals. I mean, I really, it's obvious to say, and I'm not the only person that's ever said it, but it is a work of genius. It's a generational defining masterpiece of art, right? So no matter what you do with it, the piece is indestructible. On the page, You, it's it's there. It's everything you need it to be. As long as you understand it and play it with conviction, you can't really go wrong which is why it's lasted so long you know it, it there's a plan b that or there used to be a plan b in place for when the revolve broke down so you'd have to come in and rehearse a concert version essentially all right and they would set up the barricade behind you and they would lay a load of chairs along the front of the stage and you would step forward when it's your turn and play the scene and then sit down so the stage concert production that's on now is very similar to the, to the, the, plan, the plan B that we had to rehearse. Did that ever happen, to your knowledge? Not to my year, but yeah, it's happened in a oh, couple right. of years because the Revolve just went, nope, not tonight. And it's not an easy thing to fix on the fly. No, not So uh, they just went, plan B. But it never happened to me, but I, it did definitely happen at the Queen's a couple of times. 
now you are graduating to the man himself, Jean Valjean. Did they call you? How did it? How did it happen? <laughs> Surely they called you. <laughs> I'd love to think that it was that showbiz, but no. John, we've got Cameron for you. Uh... <laughs> yeah, let, I'll call him back. No, I, I auditioned for it for a, quite an extended period of time, and we workshopped it. And it, they've shown a they've shown a lot of um, belief in me bringing me back, um, which I hope to repay. But yeah, it was it was it was auditioned like like anything else, and you're never sure until it's signed. And quite frankly, you're never sure till you've played it. So we'll uh, we'll I'm looking forward to get my teeth into it. How do you feel about it at the moment? I'm just really excited about it. I'm very excited about getting stuck into who he is and how he is, and because that's you know it's it's that sporting thing of you play the game, not the event, right? So although it is a big deal in the sort of cultural macro. In the micro, for me, as a person that has to actually stand there and do it, you have to think the same way you would think with any character. So who is he? What does he want? Where's he going? How's he going to get there? What are the obstacles? The, the, the usual sort of acting questions. And then, you know, I have to look other people, look other actors in the eye, which I've forgotten how to do. To play <laughs> playing King George. You have to share so, the stage. It's disgusting, isn't it? I know, I should put it in my contract, really. But, from, now um, on. from now <laughs> <Hence> on. Henceforth. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really looking forward to it. Are you looking forward to seeing yourself old? <laughs> have you, I'm guessing you haven't had the makeup on yet. Um, not all of it. We've done uh, a photo shoot a couple of weeks back. So I've been muddied and convicted. That's the wrong word, but you understand. Yeah. Um, and put on the, the wig and bits and pieces and had some old makeup on, so... So I've seen bits of it, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's definitely going to help because this is, it's, it's a genuine epic, you know, it's one of the original epics. And so you see him age from mid thirties to seventies, you know, all the way through that, which is another great acting challenge. Like, I don't know what it's like to be in my seventies. I know the pains and aches and pains of being in my mid thirties. So I can play that, but, um, lots of, oh, when you sit down, yeah, just (laughs) every move comes with a noise. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing seeing how that develops. When do you when do you start the rehearsals? Um, in a couple of weeks, six weeks or so. And before you finish here, four or five weeks. Yes. Do you know when? What are you allowed to say when your last date is? It's top secret. Gosh. Okay. Lips. Not even a word. I applaud you. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about Memphis because okay. I loved that show. Sure. So did I. I never got to see you with Huey, but was it hard to go back to being a cover? after so many parts yeah I mean I didn't think of it as a cover it was an alternate so it was you know the ownership of musical theatre parts is a sort of interesting essay in itself because you're never really creating or it's very rare especially in this country that you're creating a piece that big Um, you're recreating someone else's work anyway in this case Chad Kimball right so Killian had most of the rehearsals, but he had to skip out every now and then. And there were rehearsals that Rachel, John and I, who was the other alternate, would do just as us. And they took a lot of pains to make sure that we thought of ourselves as the principal roles, which I really appreciated because when you step in front of an audience, you have to have ownership of that role or they smell it on you. So yeah, it was it was a difficult challenge, a difficult challenge, stepping into a part that massive and then stepping out of it again, but not psychologically, just in terms of the physical effort of it all. 
But you were on stage every night in some capacity, weren't you? Because yeah. you were the guy in the white suit with the hat. Yeah. <laughs> I do Because I remember like, oh, alternate in the ensemble. Well, not in the ensemble, but like yeah. in the, yeah, in the, the part. Yeah. Uh, Gordon Grant, I think his name was. Baddie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at least you got to do something. So you weren't yeah. just sitting there twiddling your thumbs every night. No, absolutely. And when I wasn't on stage, we were doing booth singing. So the, the BVs, the, oh, right. okay. the ensemble singing in the wings. That was such a great score. I was really sad that, that it closed. Yeah, me too. Oh, we can't end on that note. Obviously, we've got Jean Valjean coming up, but just finally, any other big hitters that are sort of in your on your radar? I don't really know. For the last sort of 10 years, I've been saying Valjean to that question. So now that we're teetering on the edge of that, I guess I have to come up with a new answer. I've never got to do Judas before. However... <laughs> I w- and I've always wanted to do that. However, having watched both Tyron Huntley and Ricardo Alfonso play recently, I think I'm good. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll no, just, don't let them scare you I'll off. leave it to them. Oh, no, there's no point. They're, they're great. Why would you bother? So uh, I, I know at some point I'd like to do that. But I've got to sing most of the Jesus Christ Superstar score in concerts with big orchestras. And I thought you were going to say in the shower then. In the shower, <laughs> yes. Like, yes, On all of us have. Yeah. Um, no, I got to do it in, in concert. Um, concert venues and that's just awesome I love doing that sort of stuff great well thank you so much for coming in early well, I hope me. I haven't worn your voice out before you have to no, go no, and do your fine. great for, for nine minutes <laughs> get through it soldier on you can see John in Hamilton at the Victoria Palace Theatre until he opens as Jean Valjean in the new production of Les Miserables at the Sondheim Theatre in December to make sure you don't miss the next episode of Backstage With just subscribe on your podcast app and keep an eye on our Instagram at Backstage with Podcast to find out which stage door we're going through next. Until then, thanks for listening. Yeah.